I've had people quit jobs. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest doing this, but call off weddings because they said they needed that push. And I've never had anyone come back yet saying, hey, can I talk to you? You really screwed up my life with that whole follow the fear thing because that thing I called off, man, I should have done it. They're always like, I needed that extra push. Welcome to Archipelago, a brand new podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark, Scandinavia's smallest island nation. I'm your host, James Clasper, and in this episode, I'm going to explore a pair of words that we all use to varying degrees every day. A pair of words with the power to change your life, alter the course of history, or just stop you leaving the house. I'm talking about the words yes and no. Later on, we're going to meet a professional improviser and hear about the life-changing power of saying yes and, why mistakes should be seen as gifts, and why you should do one thing every week that scares the bejesus out of you. But first, I'm going to talk to someone about pretty much the opposite of that, including the importance of saying no, the tyranny of positive thinking, and the joy of missing out. According to his publisher, Sven Brinkman was living, quote, the relatively sedate life of a professor of psychology at Orborg University, when his book Stand Firm became an overnight sensation. A sardonic salvo against what Sven calls the self-improvement craze, Stand Firm advises readers to sack their life coach, avoid positive thinking, and wear their no-hat more often. Two years later, Sven published a relatively upbeat sequel, Standpoints, and this spring sees the publication of the English version of his 2017 book, The Joy of Missing Out. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to go back to Sven's breakthrough book, Stand Firm, and begin by hearing how the author himself describes it. It's a self-help book with seven stages, but unlike normal self-help books, my book is about how to avoid developing as a person. So in that sense, it's a parody of a self-help book, but it's not totally a parody because I actually do mean what I say when I ask people to dwell on the past or read a novel or focus on the negative things in their lives or stop navel-gazing all the time. I, I mean those things, but not dogmatically. So I don't want people to say no to everything. I don't want them to dwell on the past all the time, but it's sort of a correction. That's how I see it to the the standard advice you find in self-help books about being positive and living in the here and now or visualizing yourself in a positive way in the future. Sven says he decided to turn the self-help book on its head and believes that saying the opposite works just as well as saying what self-help books normally say. It's also a diagnosis of our times. It's um, framed as a self-help book, but I... But in a way, that's camouflage because it's, it really is a, a book about um, the dangers of constant self-improvement, the demand to always perform and optimize yourself and move and develop as a person. Um, I think this is a, a demand that has changed from being um, something you could choose to do 
and now it has become something you ought to do almost all the time in all spheres of life and then it then it has become a problem for us that's how i see it as i read stand firm i became curious about its origin story what it compelled sven to write it he told me he'd long been annoyed by the one-dimensional way in which we talk about the ideal human being how employers only seem to want people who are lifelong learners and flexible workers and so on but that wasn't all something else struck him the day he and his wife took their nine-month-old son to Vugastu, the precursor to kindergarten in Denmark. I just remember this uh, rhetoric that they put on the webpage. They believed in the philosophy of, you know, the strong individual who has the will to change and develop as a person, as something inherent in the child. And I looked at my son and he couldn't even crawl. And we placed him on the floor <laughs> and he just sat there with his pacifier and looked around you know and it was so out of touch but the reality of, of his life and capabilities were so different from what they wrote on the web page <laughs> that i thought why do they talk about children in this way but i just saw this rhetoric everywhere uh, also in, in commercials in obviously in self-help books in personal development courses, in life coaching, in mindfulness practices, in everything around us. So I decided we need a self-help book about how to avoid developing and instead put down roots. And I, I felt that also personally, um, you know, always chasing something else, the next thing, uh, never really being satisfied whenever we bought something we bought our first house and immediately we began to look for us for a better one and, and so on it just waited until we had enough money and we could move on i mean this this is a tragic situation uh if you're never really able to to be happy and satisfied with what you have and it's even more tragic when it's sort of institutionalized into uh so many spheres of our society Stand Firm has sold like hotcakes in Denmark and been translated into 15 languages. It has also helped turn Sven into something of a celebrity, a status enhanced by regular appearances on TV and radio. He says people often stop him in the street and ask to take selfies with him. Even the Prime Minister has invited him to go running, an offer the politically impartial professor has yet to accept. But a few people are somewhat less thrilled with the broadsides he's launched at the self-development industry. Life coaches, positive psychologists, mindfulness instructors. And it's a bit unfair because, you know, all these people uh, do things that are valuable. Um, but my fear is that we use these approaches as tools that simply adapt people to a world that is not worth being adapted to. And we should instead change this world the positive psychologists have been by far the most hostile, um, which I think is great because in reality it demonstrates that they are really very negative when they are criticized, and I think that's wonderful, so they're not really that positive. <laughs> now, I suspect a lot of listeners may know a life coach or two or have had coaching at some point themselves. Some may even be coaches, so I'm curious. 
What's wrong with coaching? I like coaching in sports when there is a set goal to achieve. You want to, you know, throw your spear whenever they're throwing longer than you did last year. And if you're the best, you'll win a medal and, I, and the coach can help you uh, structure your, your training and, you know, regulate how you hold your arm and all that. That's wonderful. But I fear that using this metaphor of coaching and the practice of coaching to understand life in its entirety, when you talk about life coaching or, you know, coaching concerning romantic relationships or concerning work, then everything becomes a competition. And other people very quickly becomes your opponents and you have to win. You have to beat them. I'm not at all surprised that positive psychologists were most upset by Stan Firm. Generally speaking, they explore how to make people happier and more fulfilled. And, well, chapter two of Sven's book is called Focus on the Negative in Your Life. I asked him why that's so important. Negative thoughts are the foundations for critique. And as adult human beings in a democratic society, we should be allowed to be critical of well, basically, whatever. And critical people are sometimes not very easy to be around. Uh, they cannot be controlled as easily as uh, other kinds of personalities. But but we should really cherish the fact that we uh, are allowed, or should be allowed at least, to, to be uh, critical. Part of the problem, Sven says, is that we're constantly being encouraged to do more to experience more, to say yes to more. In other words, to wear the yes hat. The expression put on the yes hat uh, was very prevalent in uh, Danish public discussions about work life when I wrote Stand Firm. And I had seen perhaps the, ex the expression the no hat a few times, but always as something you should avoid. Don't wear the no hat. Come on, don't be such a sour puss or whatever you, you say. Um, don't be so grumpy. Come on, say yes to new challenges. There's also a movie with um, Jim Carrey and it has the <laughs> character of Tony Robbins, this life coach who plays himself, I, I believe, in the movie. And he teaches Kim, Jim Carrey to say yes to everything. And so his life changes totally. And uh, I mean, in my view, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's so many things that human beings ought to say no to. But it's closely related to the tyranny of the positive, right? Uh, you, say, you should say yes. That should sort of be the default answer because everything is so wonderful. Embrace change. Happiness is a choice. Just accept it. Just say yes. Uh, and so on. What worries him is that making people wear the yes hat isn't just a matter of setting up unrealistic expectations about life. It's that it has a troubling ideological basis. It's a way of silencing critical voices. It's a way of blaming people for their own misfortunes. For example, blaming poor people for their poverty. They should just have more positive thoughts. They should just put on the yes hat. I mean, they are poor and miserable because they wear the no hat all the time. So this is as I see it, part of a an ideology that simply uh, oppresses people, basically. And, uh, and so I try to uh, valorize the no-hat a bit more. 
and uh, encourage people to wear it more often. Sven has his work cut out. The world seems to be awash with carpe diem tattoos and YOLO hashtags. More and more of us appear to want to seize the day, live for the moment, just be the best version of ourselves. To Sven, it's clear who's to blame. If you look at uh, commercials, advertisements, slogans, it's always just do it. Um, Act now. Uh, Life is short. Uh, Follow your dreams and so on. Full of slogans like that. Um, And why do they say that? Well, because they want you to act. They want you to consume. They want you to spend money. They don't want you to be happy with what you have. Because if you're happy with what you have, you won't buy the next thing. The whole consumer economy is constructed around teaching people to be unhappy with what they have and instead just do it. Sven worries about the potentially damaging psychological effects of social media, and in particular, the way it appears to fuel FOMO, or the fear of missing out. But if all this sounds a little gloomy to you, in his latest book, The Joy of Missing Out, Sven has the antidote. It's moderation, and it all goes back to an ancient Greek philosopher. I mean, Aristotle was so clear. This is the most important virtue. This is the most important character trait that we have to cultivate in human beings if we are to flourish and live well together. And the problem I see today is that we don't really do that. In general, we teach people to, well, just do it, as I said before, to live as much as possible, you know, consume as much as possible, travel as much as possible, experience as much as possible. Life is so short. Let's do as much as possible in this short life that we have. And it's totally understandable. But it's also tragic as a reaction because it, it leads to the fear of missing out. And I think if you understand what, what someone like Aristotle meant by moderation as, as a cardinal virtue, you will understand that there's a deeper flourishing connected to, to missing out. Not on you know everything, but on unimportant stuff. So you can actually focus on these truly important human phenomena. Now, as Sven makes clear, missing out doesn't mean passing up the opportunity to go somewhere or to do something. No, the art of missing out involves what the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard implored us to do, which is to learn silence, to learn to refrain from speaking. I mean, we have a a very noisy world, (laughs) don't we? You know, the politicians and, you know, even someone like myself, uh, we tweet and we argue and, you know, but, I mean, it's it's a trivial point, but I, I, I think it's really important we don't really listen <laughs> very much and uh and, and and we need to rediscover this virtue of it, it it's also related to moderation i mean not thinking that your own voice and your own viewpoint should be heard all the time uh, be moderate just being in doubt i mean just questioning are my views really legitimate which brings us back to the tyranny of positive thinking in stand firm Sven writes that virtually all political outrages are committed by high-powered males, confident that they know the truth. Sound familiar? It all goes back to The Power of Positive Thinking, a best-selling self-help book published in 1952. Its author, Norman Vincent Peale, a pastor 
at the Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan, which the young Donald J. Trump used to attend. Peel even officiated Trump's first wedding. If you read The Power of Positive Thinking from the 50s, it's actually um, terrifying, I would almost say, uh, as a blueprint of Donald Trump's um, social media strategy and communication strategy in general. You know, never accept defeat is a chapter. Um, always be positive about yourself. I mean, he's not positive about other people, but about himself and your own abilities. Um, try to bend reality so that it conforms to your desires and preferences. All this is in the self-help industry, which and, and, and that particular book, The Power of Positive Thinking, and now is a driving force in, in politics. Stan Firm and its sequels argue that the various crises we encounter, ecological, economic, psychological and political, are all the result of a blinkered philosophy of endless growth and general cultural acceleration, one that's fueled by positive thinking. However, Sven believes there are compelling political grounds for practicing the art of missing out. His argument goes a little like this. If we want to create a sustainable planet for us all to live on, many of us are just going to have to learn a little self-restraint. I mean, I'm a psychologist with a background in philosophy, but it, it struck me at a certain point because I, I do you know, read the newspapers. I try to follow what my colleagues in the natural sciences uh, work with. You know, they're all interested now in, in climate change, in reduced biodiversity, in all these uh, disasters that come from human activity, from a, well, I would say, consumer society that is out of control. So it struck me that what we see as the negative consequences for the outer nature is just a mirror image of what we see as the negative consequences for the inner nature if if we can talk about psychological reality as the inner in that way so they're just two sides of the same coin sven says moderation is exactly what we need right now not just to live flourishing lives without the fear of missing out but also to address climate change but it begs the question where do we start try to do stuff that uh, has intrinsic value uh, all the things that are not just instrumentally valuable, like you do this so you can put it on your CV, or you do that so you can make money. Try to erase that whole mentality and and simply do things that have intrinsic value. So what does have intrinsic value? Well, ethical actions, doing uh, things for other people, uh, helping people in need. Um, but also, you know, cultural things like learning about the world, going to a museum, listening to music, read a book, read a novel. Uh, and if people ask you, why are you reading that novel? Well, for the sake of reading it. And it, uh, it's important for human beings to do things that uh, have intrinsic value. It doesn't have intrinsic value to make more money because money is an instrumental medium. Uh, it has only exchange value. But being with your children has intrinsic value. And, and we all know that uh, in a way, but we, we have to be reminded. And uh, if my books can serve as reminders, I, I'm really happy um, 
And I, I, I need to read them myself sometimes in order to be reminded. It's not something you know once and for all, and then you can you know, tick the boxes and you're okay. No, it takes <laughs> a constant practice, really, to, to cultivate this joy of missing out. That was Sven Brinkman, professor of psychology at Aalborg University and the author of Stand Firm, Standpoints, and most recently, The Joy of Missing Out. Coming up, we're talking improvised comedy with someone who wears a yes hat professionally. But first this. Hi, I'm Peter Stannis, and I'm the host of The Danish Debate, another podcast on mother tongue media. I'm taking a deep dive into Danish society and politics ahead of the upcoming general election. We're talking climate, the media, immigration, and so much more. Find The Danish Debate on your favorite podcast app. Now back to Archipelago. Made famous by the fast-paced TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway? Improvised comedy, or improv, is a form of unscripted theatre where scenes are created spontaneously, usually following a suggestion from the audience, with performers required to make it up as they go along. Its roots are American. Improv emerged in the US in the second half of the 20th century at companies like The Second City, the Chicago-based theatre that trained comedians Bill Murray, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. But in recent years, improv has gone global. According to one study, there are now more than 600 improv festivals, theatres and companies worldwide. And a 2017 book by Sam Wasson called it America's farthest reaching indigenous art form. Then there's Copenhagen. Once a comedy backwater, the Danish capital has a fast-growing improv scene, with several venues putting on regular shows. The biggest is Improv Comedy Copenhagen. Founded in 2016, it offers English improv shows five nights a week, while over a thousand students have taken classes at its training centre. The theatre's artistic director is Jay Suko, an alumnus of the Second City. He studied under comedians Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert. Who better than to define what improv is? I mean, you do it every day, if you think about it. Every day of your life is improvised. It's You can prepare for it, but it just happens. And so improv to me is something that's just very organic. And it's about facing things, being unprepared, but being comfortable with it. Improv in the sense of theatrical improv is you are creating content on the spot without any sort of script. You get a suggestion or several from the audience. And then you create comedy on the spot based on that suggestion. And so it's, it's, um, it is very hard if you think about it, because you have to create something with a bunch of people having no idea what you're going to do, but trusting each other. And that's a big part of improv is listening, support and trust. And the, the bedrock is a phrase that's yes and, which means, yep, I agree to your idea and I'll add to your idea. So it's really something about being focused on other people and being focused on their idea and finding a way to help their idea get even better. The principle Jay mentioned, yes and, stick a pin in it. We'll get back to it in a second. First, we need to explore what makes improv so engaging. Many first-timers in the audience make the mistake of thinking that it's stand-up comedy or scripted, even if the improvisers on stage have asked the audience for a suggestion. So they have this a little bewildered look at the start, but then they start to understand it as it goes. But even when we do shows that are a format 
uh, it's called long form where it's like, can we have a suggestion? You get a suggestion and then you see 25 minutes of created content on the spot and comedic. They are, they don't believe you. They're like, there's no way that it was made up. Even sometimes like really bad improv. They're still like, which is strange to me of like, oh, so you thought we prepared that <laughs> and rehearsed that, which wasn't the greatest thing ever. And then we came on the stage, presented it. So I was like, cool. Thanks for that vote of confidence. My dad, when I first started doing improv, would come up and watch shows like he was very supportive. My mom and dad would come up. They would drive. I was doing a show at a, a theater and it was like an hour with no traffic from their home. And they'd come Monday nights and watch this. And I'm like, dad, what'd you think? And he'd go, I've seen it. And I'm like, it's improvised. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, I know. But so I think a lot of times people think it's, it's something that's prepared. And so that we don't get as much credit, I think at times, or they just have a hard time wrapping their heads around like, wait, how did you, how, how did you create all that? One of the other things to understand from the get-go is that improv isn't about trying to be funny. I know what you're probably thinking. How can an art form that gave us the likes of Amy Poehler, Bill Murray, Tina Fey, and Steve Carell not be about funny bones? You are giving us a challenge. You give us a suggestion, and the challenge is for us to turn that into something interesting and engaging. Humor is a byproduct, but it's not something that we're necessarily going for all the time. But if we just work together, it will be there because we're, we, we have funny people on this stage tonight. But if you are going after it, and that's the only thing you're going after. It becomes very desperate and hard to watch. I do believe when improv is done well, it's magical. It really is. It's something where you're like, how did they do that? And it's like, so trust us. What we're going to do up here is all created. You're never going to see this show again. This show is specifically for that audience. That's the other great thing about improv. The show you're watching will never be seen again. It's a you had to be there experience. And I watched, I spent 130 kroners on a movie recently here. And it really bothered me because I'm like, and I'm watching this movie and I'm like, come on, man. And I'm with my friend, Peter. And I'm like, what did we pay for this? And then I look at the price of improv shows and I'm like, it is underpriced because you're providing something really cool and you're providing really good entertainment that live theater brings. And then you're adding on top of that, watch this create it from seemingly nothing. Which brings us back to yes and. It's improv's bedrock principle. It's sine qua non. The first part of it is agreement. So you have to say yes to an idea. And what we struggle with as humans is no is such a powerful word. And so no becomes very easy to us because it's a protection. And a lot of times it makes us feel, when I say no to something, it makes me feel smarter. And it makes me feel like, uh, no, my, here's my opinion. And then that, for some reason, we think that will now hold more weight because I said no to yours. And so, and it's a very easy thing to do. And it gets lazy because you just go right away to no. So yes, and the foundation first off is about being open and hearing what it is and accepting an offer. And the and part is, okay, I heard your offer. Let me add to it. And so it's taking an idea and then making it our idea instead of just my idea. So it's going from a me to a we. Yes, and then is nothing short of a life philosophy. Jay even has it tattooed on his forearm, and it's the key to understanding not just why improv works, but how it can make you a better person. Because if you look in your life, everything that's good came because you said yes, and when you surround yourself with people who say yes and to you, you raise each other up even more. 
So I think a lot of times people feel like they can say no a bunch, but pretty soon the more no you say, <laughs> the less people are going to want to hang out with you. The um, the less you're going to stay married for sure. And you're not going to be at your job, job long if you keep saying no to your boss. So you have to find ways to make things work. So it's really take the idea of being open, listening to what somebody's saying, valuing them by hearing them. The biggest thing with, with humans is they don't feel heard. And that goes for whether it's an employee at a job, somebody in a family, somebody in a relationship. If you don't feel like you're hurt and you don't feel like you're appreciated, especially in a relationship, that's when people go outside the relationship is they're like, I don't feel like I'm supported. I don't feel like I'm heard. I don't feel like you're listening. And I think improv really helps you to listen. And that also goes with another big part of the yes and is just staying in the moment which as humans we don't do because we regret the past, we fear the future, and we're never in the moment. I should confess at this point that I've taken some improv classes at the ICC, including those taught by Jay. And at the time, I never thought I'd end up performing. Turns out, I wasn't alone. Nobody is coming to take classes going, uh, I'm here to be on stage. I want to be an improv comedian. First off, I'd be like, oh, so you don't want to make any money? Cool. Then you're in the right place. A lot of people come here. And what I do is I ask and I have them say, why are you here? And it's always similar answers. I want to improve my public speaking. I'm afraid to be in front of people. I get, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm socially awkward. And when I, that happens, I tell them, look around the room. Every head is nodding. Yep. It's like, yep, that's me. Because it's not about embarrassing somebody else or being embarrassed because that's counter to yes and. Yes and is, yep, it includes yourself. Yes and yourself. Uh, accept who you are. You're not trying to, ch we're not trying to change you into something you're not. We're trying to raise up who you are. People will, after a show, say, hey, you want to learn to be funny? Come take an improv class. And that's the wrong message because it's not, you're not going to learn how to be funny because that's not the focus of it. The focus of it is, do you want to learn how to feel more supported? Do you want to learn how to bring your voice up? Do you want to learn how to be more confident? Do you want to learn how to embrace who you are? Do you want to look around a room and see a bunch of people just like you who don't look like you, but are like you? Then that's what improv is. And in improv, we say, let your freak flag fly, meaning embrace who you are. And I tell people, I go, we're all a little bit strange. We're all a little bit weird in, in life. You have to embrace that part of you. Before my first class, I was worried I wouldn't be funny enough. I mean, I like a good pun, but would I really be able to take a suggestion and run with it? As Jay says, though, improv isn't about trying to be funny. And that's not all. Everyone is funny. They are naturally funny. When you when I'm teaching improv, it's like I'm not really teaching them to be funny. I'm helping them discover their sense of humor. And to me, it's like it's not the goal. It's a byproduct. It's not the goal. The 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 goal is fun. Are you having fun? That's the big part. So improv allows you to play. And when you play, you open up oxygen to your brain. You allow yourself to be more um, silly, and that allows more fun to happen. And all the, the foundation of improv are based on games from a woman named uh, Viola Spolin, who worked with uh, someone named Neva Boyd. And those two kind of founded the uh, what improv is, which is they looked at um, a need. And the need was there were children in Chicago 
that um, they wanted to help assimilate into society and overcome language barriers. And so they created these improv games, which is the foundation. These drama games they found helped people, helped children especially, get out of the fear of of talking, the fear of language, the fear of being made fun of. And in improv, you force, you're always with a group. You're forced to be a part of a group. You're never alone. And so all of those things, when people talk about, oh, I'm not funny or any of that, it's like, well, that's the focus isn't that. I say to them, do you want to have the most fun you'll have all week? I'll guarantee you this will be the most fun you have all week. And they come out to class and they slowly learn that, A, yeah, the goal isn't you have to be funny. It's just working together. And the two of us working together on something can cause it to be funny. At this point, you may be wondering, how do you get a room full of strangers to relax, let their freak flag fly and, well, play children's games? The first thing I usually do in a class is I make them play a kid's game like tag. You're running around, one person's it, and they're going to tag somebody, and you're trying to get away from them. I want them first off to just break down the barriers of fear. Then I, I have them get in a circle, and I say, you're going to point at somebody, and you're going to say, you. And that person's going to go, yes. And then when they say yes, you're going to walk to their spot in the circle. Before you get there, the person who said yes has to point to somebody else and say you. And then that person they point at will say yes. And that's getting them trained just to say yes right away. Just be like, yes. What that also does is it forces them to accept mistakes. And when somebody makes a mistake in improv, we high five them. We don't point it out. We don't correct it. We go, great. And we have them take sometimes failure bows, which is bow, own it. So it teaches you how to own your mistakes. And this is another golden rule of improv. Mistakes are seen as serendipitous offerings from the gods of comedy. Beautiful little opportunities to take a scene or storyline in a totally unexpected direction. All mistakes are gifts that we call happy accidents. And so if you can accept these mistakes, which means you start accepting yourself, which means um, then you can open up even more. And then you're with people who go, no, no, no. How you are is, I really dig that. And I tell, you know, I teach... Look at your partners as rock stars and geniuses, which is a lesson I learned, which I appreciate, which is if you're focused on them, your ego stays at the door. You're already making those changes. And our ego and fear are the two things that screw us up. And in improv, we attack ego and fear right away. In fact, it turns out improv isn't so much about attacking your fear as actively going after it, following your fear, chasing it down and then attacking it. Jay even has homework for students. And it's something you can, if you like, start doing today. Once a week, do something that scares you. And I've had amazing results, like people where it's like, oh man, I, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, this first thing I'm going to do, the thing I'm most afraid of. I've had people quit jobs. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't suggest doing this, but call off weddings because they said they needed that push. And I've never had anyone come back yet saying, hey, can I talk to you? You really screwed up my life with that whole follow the fear thing because that thing I called off, man, I should have done it. They're always like, I needed that extra push. I hope you're starting to see how all of this, saying yes and, accepting mistakes as gifts, giving yourself permission to fail, is something that's about much more than improvised comedy or about being funny, but about personal development and becoming a better person. Go into situations in these these low stakes improv classes being like, I'm probably going to mess this up. This game that he just explained that I've never heard of or played before, I'm probably going to mess that game up. 
And if you are okay with that, then you start, that starts transitioning to other parts of your life. And so I think all of those start adding up these, it's these small ripples that can start turning into really big changes in life. So to me, it's, it's not the people that go on to be on TV or film that like, those are great, but it's the people I work with that go on and change their lives for the better and tell me like, I play with my grandkids better now. Those are the ones that to me are like, that's what improv is. It's that. However, one of improv's most extraordinary impacts has been in the corporate world. Google, Unilever, and PepsiCo have all sent employees on improv courses designed to improve workplace skills like communication and collaboration. In Copenhagen, the ICC has run workshops with Danish companies like Carlsberg and Mask. And, as Jay explains, the key is to get their employees to understand what saying yes and really means. It's not like, hey, uh, James, um, I want to take our budget for this quarter and blow it on, <laughs> on a rodeo. Although a rodeo would be awesome. But it's not saying like, yeah, absolutely. Or like, let's, I'm scared to run into traffic. I'm going to do that. It's like, no, no, no. But it's the idea of like, before I say no, how can this work? And it's the idea of we have to work together. It's the idea of listening better. It's the idea like nobody's ever going to say, oh, that James. You know what he did? He listened to me very intently until I was finished speaking. And then he replied. The challenge in the past when I started doing corporate improv back in the 1990s was you couldn't measure it. It wasn't like, well, this emotional investment raised our productivity this much. But now you're starting to be able to see that. And dealing with growth, which is very scary. That's a whole fear thing, too, is what do we do with with growth? There's a big no, but very few people go into a situation of growth or a situation that's unknown and goes can't wait. This is going to be incredible. It's always like there's a lot of fear associated with it. So I think improv helps you get in those situations and understand it's okay to be uncomfortable. But despite the foray that improv has made into the business world, Jay is adamant that improv is for everyone. It helps people listen more and stay in the moment more. It helps you see the world and, and changes your behavior and changes it for the better. And I think that one of the biggest ones is it gets you back to a sense of play. And I think a sense of play is lost right now. And I think a sense of the importance of play. If you're at all intrigued by improv or the philosophy of saying yes and, Jay is unequivocal. Enroll in an improv class immediately. Take one improv class. I'm, I, I mean it like if everyone took one class, the world would be a better place. Just everyone take one improv class. After that class, you might be like, eh, it's not for me, but I doubt it. That was Jay Suko, the artistic director of Improv Comedy Copenhagen. Both Jay and Sven Brinkman are advocates of active listening, of listening more. And that's something I hope you'll continue to do with Archipelago. It's produced by Mother Tongue Media, a new home for English language podcasts in Denmark. Remember, we've also got a fantastic new podcast about politics and current affairs. It's called The Danish Debate, and it's hosted by Peter Stanners, who co-founded and edited the Murmur newspaper. And there's a reason why both Peter and I are producing new podcasts. In short, we believe there's a demand for high-quality English-language podcasting here in Denmark. Visit mothertongue.dk to find out more. And if you like this episode, take a minute to review us on Apple Podcasts or mention us on Twitter 
hashtagging at ArchipelagoPod. Reviews and shares will help even more people discover us. And that's all we've got time for today. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, James Clasper, for Mother Tongue Media. The music is by two local artists, Squares and Triangles and Scenery. You can find links to their music on our homepage, archipelago.mothertongue.dk. Thank you for listening. See you next time.